1863 is an iconographer of inner space. Indeed, one of Ernst's paintings appears in The Drowned World, 1962, on the wall of an abandoned apartment, the canvas of one of Max Ernst's self-devouring phantasmagoric jungles screamed silently to itself. Ernst influenced Ballard, and Ballard in turn would influence the work of Japanese anime directors, especially Hayao Miyazaki and his followers at Studio Ghibli, whose films are often set in futures in which forests, sometimes toxic, sometimes benign, have recolonized humanity's ruins. The trope at the heart of the Baroque is repetition. Repetition is also the trope at the heart of Ballard. It occurs across his oeuvre, and one of the first challenges of reading him is to understand that this repetition is strategic rather than careless. It operates as what he once called a second language, existing upon the surface of the narrative as a kind of code or as signposts, his metaphor, that give access to depths. In the crystal world, repetition, also the first principle of crystallography, juts out in the form of image and is internalized as the novel's grammar. The first crystallized object that Sanders sees is an orchid, whose mineral metamorphosis has resulted in a dozen refracted images, one upon the other, as if seen through a maze of prisms. Things repeat themselves, and then things repeat each other. In the zone, all objects are self-similar because all are vitrified. It is, reflects Sanders, a place of rainbows where nothing is distinguished from anything else. Ballard's language performs its own version of this indistinction by means of simile, which proliferates from the opening page. A profusion of as-ifs and likes function as the crystallization does, bringing all things into mutual resemblance. This surplus of sameness also expresses itself in the characters who begin, weirdly, to repeat activities and phrases and to pair off in twinned versions of each other. And at the novel's end, though I must not reveal too much, an act of perfect repetition on Sander's part returns us to a much earlier point in the book, thus leaving the crystal world encased in its own maze of prisms. In a 1961 essay, Iris Murdoch separated twentieth-century novels into two types, the journalistic and the crystalline. The journalistic was sprawling, inclusive, and documentary, a degenerate descendant of the nineteenth-century novel. The crystalline novel, by contrast, was a small, quasi-allegorical object that did not contain characters in the nineteenth-century sense. Certainly the crystal world is crystalline in Murdoch's definition of the term. But what is the nature of its quasi-allegory? What do the crystals mean? They mean many things, of course. At one point in the novel, Sanders considers the physics of gemstone cutting, whereby faceting and polishing serve to gather and ricochet light such that jewels appear to occupy more than their own volume of space. Ballard's novel possesses similar properties. It is radiant and repetitive with meanings. It is possible, for instance, to read the crystals as a manifestation of capital, a fiscal rather than a physical precipitation, whereby all things are rendered fungible. The time leak starts close to a French-run diamond mine, where the earth is being plundered for profit. The military investigation into the phenomenon is triggered not because of the danger to local people, but because it has destabilized the global diamond markets. Or perhaps the crystallization represents mediation, 
the endless image-making of modernity, and the consequent retreat of the real and death of affect that so inspired mid-period ballad. A hint is dropped in support of this reading when Sanders seeks a comparison for the zone's luminosity and thinks that it is as if the whole scene were being reproduced by some overactive technicolor process. And, risky as biographical interpretations always are, it is hard not to connect the novel with the sudden death from pneumonia in 1964 of Ballard's wife, Mary, two years before the publication of The Crystal World. Thus, perhaps, the presence of Serena, who lies in the jungle, fatally stricken with tuberculosis, yet sustained by her progressive crystallization as two grieving men circle obsessively about her. Unmistakably, the novel also expresses Ballard's career-long fascination with the annihilation of time. Again and again he wrote in opposition to me.